All right. How is everybody doing? Thank you for joining. Uh, this is Mark Uzanski, and this is Tone Talk, and I am here with Dave Friedman, who's also uh, on the show with me, co-hosting the show with me. Dave, how are you? I'm doing good. I think your feed, the feed is just catching up. <laughs> hey, now we see everyone. There we go. Oh, okay. You're talking about the uh, on the channel? Yeah. Yeah, there's yeah. like a seven-second delay on that. Yeah, that's fine. Um, that's just in, curse, in case we curse and I have to cut everybody, you know, we... we I have to hit the bleep button and stuff. We can't curse. Well, I'll leave. Then I'll leave now. <laughs> <laughs> we can, I only speak sailor. All right. We can curse a little bit, I think. Grover, how are you? I'm very good. Thank you. How are you? I'm good. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, we are, This is our first show, Dave and I, uh, having our first show, Tone Talk. And uh, to have you on is just a pleasure. Uh, you are a legend guitar maker luthier and uh i know you know you're cringing as i say that so <laughs> but uh you know in in people's minds you know you really have come up with some amazing guitars and uh, throughout your career and thank you for joining us well thank you very much and uh and dave i can't thank you enough for uh you know being partners with me on the show it's uh it's awesome yeah it should be it should be fun you know i mean for anyone who's who's listening i mean i think we're going to do something a little different. It's not, it's not a show geared at any one specific genre or topic or anything. It's kind of all things music. It's all manufacturers are welcome to come on the show. And, uh, you know, I think we're going to do something kind of cool. Hell, if you want to talk about scotch or something else, we can talk about that too. I mean, it, it, it doesn't necessarily have to be gear even. Exactly. But, uh, I, exactly. I think that is basically the focus. But <laughs> yeah, we can talk alcohol. We can talk favorite beers. I'm I'm into it all. <laughs> yeah. Kardashians? Do we talk about the Kardashians? If you oh. want, sure. Anything you want. <laughs> <laughs> Do you know much about the Kardashians, Grover? Nothing. Nothing at all. But I would okay. like to see the spawn of the Kardashians and Kim Jong Un. I mean, I think that that combination of the gene pool would be. Really entertaining. <laughs> just, just, I'm just imagining how they would look right now. <laughs> oh man, that's, that's uh, maybe a little too much. Yeah, it's, it's a little scary. So Grover, can you um, share with us uh, just some of your background, some of your history before we uh, kind of dive into the rest of our conversation? Uh, yeah, I'll try to keep it as short as possible. Because no, no, take your time. Long and uh, ugly story. Um, I, I grew up in East Tennessee, just outside of Chattanooga, Tennessee. My dad was a custom furniture maker, so I grew up in a wood shop. Uh, literally, we lived up. We lived in a two-story house. Lived upstairs. My dad's shop was downstairs, and so then I'm a product of the '60s. So in the '60s, everybody played guitar, and so I sort of ended up being the guy in the band that was always repairing other people's stuff. Sometime in my early twenties. Uh, just after my first immigration to California, I realized that I was not going to be Elvis. <laughs> um, so I better do something that I could figure out how to do, and, and taking things apart was that. I, um, I actually started working for a little while uh, at the Anvil Case Company, um, and... Um, one of the owners of the Anvil Case Company was is still one of the most important people in my life, a guy named Larry Vallis, who lives down in Florida, not too far from you, Mark. Oh, and, okay. um, 
the Vallis family taught me a lot. Um, that's become very useful recently, and I'm rambling. I'll I'll just kind of go all over the place. Um, yeah, take yeah, take us on the path. Well, um, the, the Vallis family were Greeks, and I'd never really been expo- exposed to Greeks, and and uh, uh, I was working at Anvil, and uh, the t- two brothers would fight constantly, and I and I I didn't come up in a household like that, so it was very interesting to me that Mediterranean sort of kind of love bigger and hate bigger than other people. And so they could fight like cats and dogs and then still, uh, and then still have this uh, tremendous bond with each other. And that's become useful with uh, Avi <laughs> being Israeli. So uh, I understand Avi a lot based on my experience with the Vallis family. And that's way afield. The, I came to California and ended up working at Anvil for a while company was sold. I was going to go back to being a guitar player and there was a little guitar repair shop in Azusa called Charvel Guitar Repair. And uh, I went out actually just to get some parts to put a guitar together and go back to being a guitar player and became involved with a guy named Wayne Charvel at this little repair shop. And he, we went to lunch and he says, oh, I'm going to have to go bankrupt because I've been sued. And, you know, in a fit of inspiration, I said, well, if I can save your business, um, I won't take any wages, but if I can save your business, um, will you give me 10% of the company? Mm. And so we worked like that from the fall of 1977 to the fall of 1978, at which point he said, look, I just, I got to go bankrupt. And I, I said, this is still basically just a repair shop. There's no guitars being made at all. And, uh, I, I said, well, at least you ought to give me an opportunity to buy this. So I bought a essentially bankrupt guitar repair shop for about $39,000, borrowed money from my parents and bought this thing. And that was the beginning of Charville Guitars. A couple of years later, I met a guy named Randy Rhodes, made uh, the first Jackson guitar with Randy Rhodes. And then the stories get longer and more boring. So, uh, <laughs> but that's, that's how it started. That's how I started. I, I started in a wood shop with my dad ended up buying a guitar repair shop and then built that into Jackson Charvel 1990. I ended up selling out and moving out of the guitar business for a few years. I was in the recording studio business. And um, then after that, I ran uh, non-compete ran out in the mid nineties. I ran Washburn for a few years, came back to California and ran Rickenbacker for a few years. And then after that, I started the little shop that I have now making parts for people and I, that's probably enough of that <laughs> well i thought that was a great story um it, it led me to a bunch of other questions but dave do you do you have any questions oh, one thing to elaborate on grover yeah. is, is the uh the uh charvel jackson uh where that came where it's separated and i think that had to do with the randy Rhodes hmm. thing so that a little part of that story would be great yeah the Sure, we had this brand name. We started making guitars and and uh, called them Charvel guitars, and they were essentially all bolt-on guitars. And then Randy appeared on the scene with this little line drawing that he had on a cocktail napkin of this weird V-shaped kind of thing. And our 
you know, our, the, the success of the company at, at that point was so tenuous. Really, really, we were living hand to mouth. And um, I was afraid that this weird shaped thing might have a negative impact on the little bit of success I was having with the bolt-on Charvel. So we decided collectively, Randy and I decided to make it a neck to the body guitar. And I said, well, um, I put the head on it. He had the body shape. And uh, I said, how about we put a different name on this? I didn't say because I was afraid he might ruin my business. I just said, can we put a different name on it? And he said, sure. What do you think? And I go, I don't know, Jackson. And he said, sure, that's, that's fine that you're making it, have your name on it. it makes sense. And that's that original white guitar um, that's still in the Rhodes family is the original Jackson guitar. So that's the first one you built. That's it. That's it. Name Jackson. Anything that first, the first thing that had a Jackson name on it. Right. The white guitar that Randy's very famous for having played. Wow. Yeah. I posted some pictures of that today on our Twitter account. That's amazing. Yeah, it it was, uh, they, those were interesting times. Uh, bunch of young guys trying to figure out how to do something right. I, as a guitar player, I, I had been, um, a vintage collector and I had bought and sold a bunch of vintage guitars. I'd, I'd owned eight or nine original sunburst Les Pauls. Wow. I owned uh, several original flying V's and a couple of uh, explorers plus strats and tallies and all this other stuff. And so I pretty much had a good idea of what a great guitar was. I'd played them. I'd worked on them. I'd owned them. Um, so we really just kind of took that the elements that were wonderful about great vintage guitars and tried to encapsulate as much of that as possible. And to our great fortune, Los Angeles in that window of time, really late seventies, early eighties was the center of the universe for this music phenomenon that became the eighties. And I'm, I'm very clear about the fact that I could have worked as hard as I did and made some good decisions as I did and some bad decisions. Um, but been in Buenos Aires or, you know, uh, Istanbul or, Mm -hmm. and nobody would have ever known about us. It was purely the luck of being in the right place at the right time and making the right product. I think we made the right product. There's no doubt about that, but, but, um, it was really the luck of being in a place where things happened. So, uh, yeah, lightning in a bottle, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Right place. It was an right. exciting, crazy time. Yeah. yeah. So how did you end up meeting Randy? How did that come about? Well, it's, it, I mean, I've told this story a number of times. I, I, Sorry, Randy I, was a guy who had played really. I, I think I got to preface this a little bit with, um, the scene. In the 76, 77, 78 sort of era, um, there were four guys, prominent guys, in the Los Angeles scene making waves. You got to imagine there weren't more than three or four or five clubs that original music could play in. There was a lot of music being played in Los Angeles, but it was all in lounges and places where you were playing in the top 40. And this sort of burgeoning original music scene you had ed obviously you had randy you had george lynch 
a fourth guy that I always like to mention, he's passed away not too long ago, a guy named Jimmy Bates, who, who was the peer of those other three guys. The fifth guy you might throw in would be Terry Kilgore. Um, uh, so you had this, this, this very homespun little network of people that were playing music in Los Angeles at that time, and it was just getting ready to explode. And I forget how the hell I got on that. <laughs> what was the question again? Well, it was how, how, how you met Randy, but, you know, how, you, oh, how well, that all came oh, about. Randy, yeah. oh, okay, no, that's good. I'm sorry. No worries. So, Rand, Randy was playing this band, Quiet Riot. Mm-hmm. They couldn't get arrested. Could not get a record deal to save their life. And probably left best left aside for why that was. But they just, mm-hmm. they, it, it wasn't working. And uh, Ozzy um, had gotten out of Black Sabbath and was in pretty rough shape. That's really well documented, I think, in Sharon's book and other books that, that Ozzy was in rough shape. And, oh, yeah. and yeah. Sharon decided to try to repair his life and turn him into the Prince of Darkness. And uh, they held auditions. And Randy, who was sort of in Quiet Riot and sort of not in Quiet Riot, auditioned, got the gig, and off they went to England to record the first, you know, Ozzy record. And Ozzy came, uh, Randy came home after that record was recorded, but the, the record had not been released here in the States. It had been released in Europe and was doing sort of okay. But Randy came home to see his mom for Christmas, and he just called me up out of the blue. And... Uh, it came out on the 23rd of December. I'd already turned everybody loose for the Christmas holiday. And so he came at about noon and, and Randy and I sat for 12 hours and talked. We talked from noon to midnight and the, the Rhodes guitar was basically the original one was created that first day, the idea, the design, the elements of what that guitar was supposed to be. But then we talked about everything in the world because as much as people liked it, ask questions about Randy. I never think of him as a guitar player. I always think of him as this guy that was just this really warm, sweet, decent person and, and easiest guy in the world to like. Um, and awesome. he played guitar. He happened to play guitar really great. That's so great. That's yeah, how I, know, I know you've, you've, you've definitely said that story before. I'll tell you one person mentioned this question in the chat and I want to throw it out there when you were at, uh, at Charvel uh, this guy, uh, David Allen Wright, asked us, um, were you involved in the Bumblebee at all, the uh, black and yellow guitar, the Charvel that was made for Eddie? I made that guitar. That, that, and in fact, Ed, uh, I have a long and complicated history with Mr. Van Halen. Uh, but that particular guitar, uh, I, I made that guitar. Uh, some of the guys in the shop worked on it, but I put it together. I set that guitar up. Ed woke my wife at the time and I up at midnight and to inform us that the guitar had to be at Paramount Studios the next day for the photo shoot for the album, which is the day that David apparently did a, some kind of a jump or something, broke his ankle. But uh, right. yeah, the black and yellow guitar was hundred percent me. That's awesome. Cause there's a lot of, a lot of rumor back and forth on who, who worked on that guitar, who built that guitar. So, uh, and there may be, you know, it, it, I've never made it my business to go out and, and try to um, create a, a historical document about, you know, this or that event. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and in the absence of some sort of authoritative statement about things, people make stuff up. Mm-hmm. And there's been a lot of stuff made up that's just absolutely not true. Um, but yeah, the black and yellow guitars. And, and in fact, again, my complicated history with Mr. Van Halen, um, the original pressing of that album had a Charvel logo on the guitar. Subsequent, if you go buy that record to a CD or if you can find, uh, I don't even know if they still press that as vinyl or not, but yeah, they do. The, logo, the logo's been removed off the album art. Why is that? Uh, huh? Is any particular reason that you still want to pay Charvel? Is that? I don't know if you want to go down this. <laughs> path. Yeah. I don't know if we want to go down this path. Yeah, okay. I, don't, I don't think so. Uh, it, All right. Well, well, let, we'll com- let that it's complicated. Complicated. It's That's very, interesting. Very complicated. I didn't know that. Interesting. Uh, I I I do know I, that there I was black tape. I think that probably the uh, the the thing the the best positive thing that I could say about that is that um, for me, being a little older, um, in the 60s, there was the big four, uh, Clapton, Page, Beck, and Hendrix. And those guys kind of set the tone for what, they changed guitar, they changed guitar players, they they made uh, thousands and thousands of people want to play guitar, they influenced people's playing styles, and nobody great guitar players between that era and Ed. Um, but nobody until Ed made the impact that he did. Uh, he, he made a, an absolutely indelible impact caused thousands of people to be interested in playing guitar, influenced thousands of guitar players. Um, and I think to some degree, if you, if you've lived with the guitar your whole life and it's been important, an object that you find always in your life you owe ed a, a tremendous debt of gratitude for that because he he really was the guy who who broke the mold and and uh was the guy yeah and i don't think anybody since then has done that it's true it's true i mean he changed the face that's for sure absolutely he did brought the attention back that to first the guitar. record hit and I'm, I'm telling you boy it was that was that was magic, uh, and 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 there was this movement, you know, going on. It's just that they, I mean, I was around that band a lot in that in that era when they were just emerging. Mm-hmm. There and there was this robust local scene, like I talked about a minute ago, and then there was Van Halen. <laughs> I mean, there there was this these guys, these local guys writing local music, and they were good. Mm-hmm. And then there was Van Halen. Yeah. And it was it was night and day. They were they were, and I think I've said it somewhere before. Viciously determined to be successful. Um, there was not a question in their mind. It, it was just a matter of when are the pieces of the puzzle going to fall together. Mm-hmm. The determination that that band exhibited in those days was just stunning to see. So yeah, I agree. I'm going to check the chat, Dave. Um, I, I got another one. I got another one for Grover while you're checking the chat. Um, yeah. uh, hey, Grover, uh, you know, um, you, um, you've told me a story speaking of the sixties guitar players. 
you told me a story about Mr. Page, Jimmy Page. Mm. That is, that's a fantastic story. I, lo- I love this story. Uh, you, you're talking about the riot house. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Oh, awesome. Let's hear it. So, so I, when I come to California as a guitar player, um, in the 78 sort of range, um, uh, I was broke. And I had a friend who worked at Gruen Guitars, which uh, was GTR then, and it became Gruen Guitars in Nashville. And he would send me a couple of vintage guitars, and I would try to pedal them and make a few bucks to buy peanut butter and jelly um, as I was sleeping on a friend's uh, living room floor. And so one day I get my little Chevy Nova, and I there was not much to do. I was playing in a couple of bands, but there was rehearsals at night and a gig every once in a while. And so my days were pretty free. And uh, so I get in the little Chevy Nova, and I drive down Sunset, and I get to um, Guitar Center, and there's a limo out front. And I went, oh, wow, you know, there must be somebody important in there. And I, and I go in to uh, Guitar Center, and everybody, the staff, all the staff are kind of looking sideways at, at, you know, out of the corner of their eye because they don't want to look at this guy. There's a guy over at the famous you know, wall of guitars, and he's moving up and down looking at the guitars on the wall, and everybody in the store is trying to pretend like they're not watching him while they are. And I couldn't see who it was, and this guy skittled myself over to the side, and I went, holy shit, that's Jimmy Page. Wow. And I was just hungry enough that I just marched right up to him in the middle of the guitar center and said, hey, you want to buy some vintage guitars? And he says, well, maybe. What do you got? I said, well, you know, I've got a gold top, and I've I've got a a Telecaster. Uh, I can date this because... Led Zeppelin was in California for the introduction of Swan Song Records, which was Bad Company and Maggie Bell. Mm-hmm. Uh, the uh, first two artists, I think. That was the two first artists on Swan Song Records. And that's what they were doing here. So he says, oh, well, why don't you bring the guitars and come by the Hyatt house tomorrow morning and let's look at what you got. And uh, so sure enough, the next morning I go trudging over to the Sunset Hyatt house and up to the room he tells me to oh, knock on the door and sure enough jimmy page comes to the door <laughs> and i go in and me and jimmy page sit and play guitar for about an hour an hour and a half you know sort of just two guys uh playing guitar which was really amazing for me because it there was no rock star attitude. There was no, he was just a nice guy, and he just he was interested in this and interested in that, and we sort of traded licks back and forth, and it was really uh, an amazing moment. At the end of it, he wasn't interested in the gold top, and he wasn't interested in, in the telly that I had, but he said, look, if you, if you find an Everly Brothers acoustic, which everybody wants, or if you find an ES5 Switchmaster, or I'm always interested in sunbursts, he took a piece of paper, a little notepad from the bedside, and um, and wrote Jimmy Page, Plumpton, Sussex, Sussex, England. And he said, write me at home. Don't go through the office because they won't put you through. But if you write me at home, if you find one of these guitars I want, I want to buy them. And um, I still have that piece of paper with his signature and he doesn't own that home anymore. I happened. To, I looked it up a few years ago, and it was on the market for sale as previously owned by Jimmy Page. So it was his home address, and uh, 
I, I really remember and treasure that particular moment of having this this opportunity to spend a, you know an hour hour and a half whatever it was with Jimmy Page and he was just a regular guy I thought he was great you hear all the stories about Loch Ness and Aleister Crowley and all this you know marketing BS but for me he was just a guy that played guitar that's amazing that's, yeah. a, that's a good one that's a good one that's a good I, I have had many times sitting down at bars with Grover so far <laughs> on our on our journeys to Sweetwater Music or uh, wherever else we went. I don't know. Yeah, so, we shared a beverage or two. Shared a beverage or two, yes. So, well, I get to I got the whole uh, stories many times over. Yeah, you've got you got the inside track. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> well, we got a couple other questions. I'm going to jump into the chat if you don't mind, guys. Great. And, uh, yeah. yeah. Say hi to a bunch of people because we've got a lot of people who are who are in the chat and uh, excited about the show. I mean, uh, right now, just so you know, we've got uh, how many people? Fifty-five people watching live. Wow! Yeah, pretty good for the first show. Not too bad, guys. Um, and so we got Mully, and Mully wanted me to. Uh, he was the first one in, so he gets one of the first questions, Mully. Uh, and Mully lives in Japan, by the way. Yeah, I'm looking um, at the, I'm looking at this list, and I'm like, oh wow, okay, there's a whole bunch of questions here. <laughs> yeah, there's a there's a lot of stuff here. So uh, I'm just going I'm just going from the top, and I'll just try to take. Uh, I took some notes, um, but Mully first, Dave. He he won the Junction Box. I think there was a, a contest through the Guitar Guru Network with Keith Bears. Oh, great, good, oh, I, cool. I, did, did you get it already? And I think he got it. Yeah. All right, great. Yeah, he won the junction box. So, uh, is that what it's is that what it's called? The junction box? The uh, the um, uh, it's called a buffer bay. The buffer bay. Okay. Yeah. All right. it, it, originally, it was the junction box, and then we changed the name. Huh. I like buffer bay better. Yeah. <laughs> Which is why we changed. Um, it. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> um, so Molly had a question for you, Grover. He wanted to know: Do you think would if, had Randy had lived? Would Randy have changed uh, the face of guitar like Ed did? Uh, it, probably not. Uh, I mean, I, I, it's. I mean, obviously, we'll never know. But you know, Randy had already made it very clear um, in a number of different places that that um, he was going to leave Ozzy. Uh, I, I think that's a really important kind of point because. Um, it it, uh, it illustrates that old saying about be careful what you ask for, you might get it. Mm-hmm. Um, I think Randy had knocked around L.A. wanting to be a rock star, wanting to be a rock star, became a rock star and went, oh, man, I don't like this. This is this is not what I thought I was signing up for. Um, the, the, the bad thing about rock stardom um, and the music business it's really the music business is because music, the music part of that phrase is really great. And then the business part of that phrase is not so great. Worse and, and so, worse. <laughs> yeah. It, it, you know, it, um, it's a really tough racket. It's a really tough racket. And, um, you know, a lot of times I, I think Randy was, um, as much as any guy I've ever known really in it for the music. He really was a musician. Um, and thought that rock stardom was was something that was sort of fundamentally connected to that, and then sort of realized that that there was a lot more business involved uh, than he'd expected. And I don't think he had a taste for it. 
Um, so what would he have done? Uh, well, he'd, he'd made it pretty clear that he was going to, you know, come home and quit and go back to school and get a degree in music. Mm. Um, mom was an educator. He had yeah. been an educator at his mom's school. Um, would he have eventually done other musical activities? Probably. Uh, in what form with who? I don't know. I don't think it would have been quite right, probably. Um, I, I think he might, he was really enamored with classical music. I think he would have been a, you know, a long-haired classical musician instead of a long-haired uh, rock, rock musician. Yeah. So um, I, th th there's another little point about that that I that I like to make is, um, unfortunately, um, one of the best things that you can do if, if you want to have a preserved memory is die. It's a sad statement about culture that whether it's James Dean or Marilyn Monroe or Jimi Hendrix, I mean, not to say that any of those people weren't great um, entertainers or members of the entertainment community, but the fact that they passed away immediately sort of elevates them to a different status. And I, I think that it's sort of morbid and icky, mm -hmm. but the fact that Randy died tragically elevated him um, to a, a point where, I don't know, it's just kind of weird and icky, but it, it just seems like if you want to be famous, <laughs> oh man yeah i mean I, it's not, it's not like i say that with any joy it's just you know no i know it's true it's you know it's happened to so many uh famous poets and famous other you know people in the arts besides music you know they yeah they die young and then they become this mythical character well dimebag daryl is an, another guy that i spent a fair amount yeah. of time with and uh and uh you know, he got assassinated on stage, uh, and now he's, he's taken forever. Her thing, you know. Yeah. What's that, Dave? He's famous forever. Yeah, he is famous forever. Yeah, he was a great guy. He was a fun, crazy guy. Yeah, you and I, you were telling me some stories last night of just about how uh, gracious he was with his fans. Oh, he was. He was. I've never known, as I told you last night, I've never known anybody who appreciated their fans more than Daryl did. It really meant something deep to him that people wanted to come and see him and meet him or hear, listen to his music. It was, it was a real mm. honor for him to have fans, not yeah. an expectation or a demand. Or, I mean, he just appreciated the heck out of it. Yeah. From, from, uh, yeah, from what a few of my friends who've been on tour with him have uh, uh, talked about, uh, not necessarily a great guy to go drinking with. Well, um, <laughs> he, in, a, in a way, <laughs> I, I, I like to think of Daryl as, as almost like an Olympic athlete. Though. <laughs> he, knew, he, knew it, he knew where what his limit was. I mean, he would get out to that particular place, and he was fine. He could maintain. Now, as people tried to keep up with him, they may have not been able to really monitor themselves as well. But Daryl was, he would get to a place, which is pretty crazy, <laughs> but not too far. Wait, wait, wait a minute. Didn't you tell me another story about him? I, I did. 
you know, <laughs> we'll save that one for another time. Okay. <laughs> All right. It, it, it involves marital aids and. Um, oh yes, that was yeah, that was a good story. Oh. A lot of now, late, now, a lot now, of never, now everyone's going. Uh, wait, what? Yeah, that one. That one. I'm going to save for the book. There you go. <laughs> you got to save some stories. Yeah. So I'm just going to jump back in the chat and just say hi to some folks. So we've got sinner Craig Rundles, who is from Russia. Uh, I know Craig. He's a great, great guy. Plays a lot of uh, Jason Becker stuff. Um, and uh, you'll you'll see uh, Grover. We've got a lot of people with interesting names too in the chat. Uh, Dirty Apes. Says hello from Montana. Uh, we got T Bone and Adam and Michael Collings. Pete Caruccio, how's it going, buddy? He's from Long Island. Uh, Danny Cummings, David Allen Wright, Thomas Brio, Brino. Um, and I'm not going to go through all this because if I do, it'll take me all night. Literally, the chat is just on fire. We had uh, Liquid Charlie co- come in, um, Dave, Dave Nesdal, uh, Johnny Bean. Um, let's see, who else? Uh, Leanne, Joe Suma. Uh, how are you, buddy? From um, he's from Greenwich Music, um, guitar wannabe. Uh, I can keep going. Danny Cummings. It, it's just it's just endless. So um, let me see if I can find a question. Um, we have one comment that says I can tell already by just listening to you, Grover. They can sit with you for a week and just pick your brain. <laughs> yeah, it, it 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 goes down that path after a while. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, let me see if I can come up with anything else that anybody had any other questions. Um, uh, let me keep going. Um, did Grover work with Neil Sean on his custom guitars back in the eighties? Yeah, I did. (laughs) That that didn't turn out well. No, no. Um, yeah, I'll tell that, um, uh, Neil, uh, this was right as Journey was doing the last tour with Steve Perry. Larry London was a drummer, um, mm. uh, and Randy Jackson, my old friend Randy Jackson, was the bass player on that tour. Mm. And um, we, Neil and I, designed that guitar, and uh, that was right as Kramer had control of the Floyd Rose. Uh, Kramer had made a deal with Floyd, who is coincidentally somebody that I'm, I'm doing work for. Floyd lives here in Southern California now, and I'm doing some work for him. Um, he's making some Floyd Rose guitars, which are very interesting guitars. And But Kramer had the rights to the Floyd Rose and, and Tremolo, and they'd cut me off. They basically just said you can't – they wanted that as a competitive item to help them sell Kramer's. And and so I couldn't get, I couldn't buy Floyd Roses. And we made that very clear to Neil when we designed the guitar. He was at that time not well known as a Floyd Rose guy because he had been playing Les Pauls and stuff. So the original Sean guitar was tunematic and then strings to the body. Well, Neil goes off on the road and he had left the, the administration of the Sean guitar business in a fellow's hands who within two weeks was calling up ordering Floyd Rose mounted guitars. And we kept saying, we made it clear we can't get them. Kramer won't sell them to us. Oh, yeah, but that's what people want to buy. Well, great. That's what they want to buy. I can't get them. Hmm. Well, somehow the information 
that we couldn't provide them with that didn't get to Neil. What got to Neil was that I was trying to destroy his company by not producing the guitars that people wanted to buy. Mm. And it didn't turn out well. So uh, that's a sort of a, there probably should have been more written documentation. And that's one of those things where you, in hindsight, you go, gee, I wish we had written some of this crap down. Um, but uh, Neil's a great guitar player and um, appreciate his guitar playing. But that was a low point in my life, actually. Uh, well, um, David, Alan Wright, thanks for bringing that up. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just kidding, David. Just wanted to. That's funny. Um, <laughs> You're actually pretty cool guitar. <laughs> great. Uh, so, That's anyway. cool. Well, how about this? Uh, I, David Nesdal has a question for you regarding, and I mentioned this to you the other night, regarding the Green Meanie with okay. Steve Vai. So uh, how did that come about? How did it become a Green Meanie? Um, and, and, and as we spoke last night, I, I think for years, this was actually on Steve's website. I haven't looked in the last few years, so I don't know if it's still there or not. But um, Steve had, had been the guitar player with Frank Zappa and uh, was not known. He was, he was, in fact, Frank, I think, used to call him my, my little Italian guitar player. Um, and uh, Steve is an unbelievable transcriptionist, and that was one of his functions in the Zappa band, as I recall it, that he would tr transcribe parts. It was all written. That was the way Frank was. Frank was a genius. And um, he'd left Frank's band and joined up with an old friend of mine named Jimmy Waldo in Alcatraz. And Jimmy called and said, hey, you know, we've got this. Ingve had left. Ingve uh, was the original guitar player in, in uh Alcatraz and he had left and they got Steve as a replacement. And uh, so Jimmy calls and says, Hey, we've got this tour two weeks and uh, Steve's guitar won't stay in tune. We need to get a guitar. And I said, well, come on out. And they came out while they were on their way out uh, to Ontario. I'd looked around and I had nothing, nothing. I could sell them. Everything was sold. We got there and I said, guys, I got, I got nothing. And they, oh no, we've got to have a guitar. He can't, he can't keep this current guitar in tune. I said, okay, well, come on, let's get in the car. And we went to my house, and I had this red to yellow sunburst Strat that I'd built for myself. And I said, okay, I'll, I'll loan you my guitar, and you can take that off to Japan and play it, and, and then when you get back, we'll make you a guitar. Okay, that's great. So off they go to Japan. They come back, and they're back a week, and I don't hear from Steve. And then another week goes by, and I still don't hear from Steve. We get to about the third week, and I'm going, I'd probably get, need to get something going for Steve, and heck, I'd like to have my guitar back. And so I called him up, and he says, yeah, you know, I really love that guitar. I said, yeah, it's a really <laughs> good guitar. He says, yeah. I had Elwood paint it green. And I says, my guitar? My red sunburst guitar? You, it's green? He goes, yeah, I really like that guitar. Said, oh, shit. Yeah, no, it's a great guitar. Uh, he says, yeah, I like it. I said, okay, it's a gift. You can have it. And I gave it to him. And um, that's that's how that my guitar ended up being green. And he played that guitar all the way up, I think, until 
and a couple of other guitars I made for him until he did the Ibanez thing. And he, he's had a wonderful, long, successful career with Ibanez and God bless him. And I think he actually wore the green meanie out. I don't, I don't think it's actually even playable anymore because he just played the thing to death. He loved that guitar. Oh, he's a fabulous talent. Yeah, oh, yeah. I he, mean, he's he's amazing. He's, yeah. yeah, amazing yeah. guitar player. Now, what was was there anything particularly special about that guitar? That uh, was it was well, it actually, you know what? In a funny sort of way, I was watching some videos last night. Um, there was something kind of special. It was a single piece ash body, and I remember that two guitars came out of that piece of wood my guitar which became steve's guitar and if you go back there's a guitar player named steve ferris that I know played steve. In band, came from mr mister well, he mm -hmm. actually when i met steve he was playing with eddie money and then then later um that right, guitar right. That, that guitar that's in most of those mr mister hmm. videos sort of a caramel sunbursty kind of charvel that's the sister guitar to mine hmm. or steve Wow. Came out of the same piece of wood. You still own it? Uh, you know, I, I, you know, I don't know. S Steve, um, after Mister Mister, Steve kind of knocked around. He played with White Snake, I think, for a minute. And Steve's uh, originally from Nebraska, I think, and grew up as an outdoorsman. Mm. And he's a professional game hunter now. If you want to go, you know, kill a lion or a tiger, or uh, here in the states a boar or something or go deer hunting you hire steve and he takes you out and make sure you don't blow your foot off uh, <laughs> I, I, don't, I don't i don't know that steve even plays that much anymore he, he really went back to sort of his roots of uh rural life but what a great guitar player he was i mean really great guitar player yeah i never saw them live they they you know they were big obviously in the mtv era yeah, they, 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 and they didn't last. There was a lot of struggle, I think, in that band. Uh, but uh, all the members of the band went on and did great things. Yeah. Uh, Steve did other stuff, like say White Snake and stuff. But uh, yeah, for 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 years when I was working for uh, when I was a kid working for Andy Browers, yeah, Studio Reynolds. Uh, yeah. You know, I um, uh, Steve was a client of Andy's, and we, you yep. know, we. We, I've known him for a long time. Yeah, I remember when he moved on to White Snake and stuff, and he was doing sessions and different things around town. I remember when he left too, and you know, and I guess became a game hunter. I didn't know that, but yeah, yeah, yeah. So. His, it, it, um, it was right around the time of the Northridge earthquake because I yeah. remember running yeah, into yeah. him and his house. He, for some reason, he didn't have uh, earthquake insurance or something. And his house, which was out in right, uh, right, right, I someplace yeah. that destroyed the damn house. Yeah, I remember this. Yeah, and uh, he said, "I think it's like, no, nah, I'm done with California. <laughs> Had enough." And then he right. went back to his roots. Right. Hmm. Fabulous wow. ears. A, a guy that could really hear stuff. He was he a real was. amp. He was absolutely. He was like with in, in amps and everything else and guitars. He really was like, yeah. He always listened intently. One of those good set of ears. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Um, one of the things I was thinking about also earlier when you were talking about your shop earlier, you know, with, with Charvel and Jackson, I had heard that a lot of the guys that were working for you, a lot of young guys, 
actually went on to become luthiers and uh, guys at the custom shop in Fender. Um, Steve Stern started with me, who makes all the high-end Gretches. Mike Shannon uh, was my, you know, sort of number one guy. Uh, Pat McGarry's over there. Um, there's a bunch of my guys um, at the Fender Custom Shop. Uh, John Gadesi runs the Schechter Custom Shop. Mm. Um, there's a whole bunch of my alumni that are, have sort of, there's some of them that have fallen into alcoholism, but there's a few that have done well. Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, I'm pretty proud of that. That's, that yeah, you should be. That's Rover University uh, put out some good uh, students. You've you spawned more kids than you thought. Yeah. <laughs> Yikes. What a thought. <laughs> um, so it, how was did... just, you know, it was just a bunch of young guys trying to figure it out. Um, the tools that were available in those days were much more primitive than we have available to us today. Mm -hmm. um, but I really think the key was the fact that I had owned all those great vintage instruments. Um, so I, I really had a really great idea of what uh, a fabulous old instrument is. I'd own a Les Paul that was one that was obscenely good. I think, I think, you know, I think that's where we kind of come together in some respects. Um, you know, uh, when I moved here when I was 18 and going to work for, you know, like the Andy Brower and, and the studio instrument rental and all this. And um, I was surrounded by vintage guitars, vintage amps, every, my, my whole background is all of that. Mm. And, uh, and, and I think that really gives you, when someone says, this sounds like a plexi amp, well, I, I mean, like, have you heard one? Have you heard a real one or not? Because I've heard so many, I can't even begin to count anymore. And, and same thing with blackface fenders, vintage copper top Vox amps. Um, and the list goes on, you know. So I had a, a schooling really early uh, for a lot of years. So, um, I, I, you know, fortunately, that, that translates into the amplifiers down the, you know, later on, I guess. Mm-hmm. And yeah, the no, guitars well, and the guitars we're making now, I mean, you know, I, I know what it's supposed to feel like, and I know what I want to see out of it. Yeah, so how did you guys, how did you two guys hook up? Like, that was definitely a question also in the chat. Well, well <laughs> go ahead, Dave. You go Thank ahead. You. Since my screen doesn't seem to switch big, uh, <laughs> I'm not sure why. Um you go. <laughs> um, I, um, as, as we had spoken about uh, GJ2, I, I have a brand called GJ2, which hasn't found much traction. Um, they're real good guitars. Yeah. The people who accidentally buy one like them. Uh, but it just, it, from a market presence kind of standpoint, it, it hasn't done that well. Okay. Just being blunt and honest about it. Mm. And so I needed to do work. I mean, I, I make stuff. That's what I do. And um, I, it had come to my attention. I, certainly I knew who Dave was. And then it came to my attention that, that uh, they had an interest in being in the guitar business as well. And so I really just marched up to them at an AM show and said, looked Avi in the eye and said, hey, I can make your guitars. And it took about three months later to get a PO. And we made the, the first guitars. And 
and it's really been going gangbusters ever since then. Um, and it's been a real, not to be too gratuitous, but uh, I mean, it's been a, a, Davis may be a little bit too modest. Uh, he has that schooling, and I've said this before, and I mean it, it's sincere. He has this, this schooling and finger on the pulse of vintage amps, but, but also the ability to inject modernness. So they're not just vintage reproduction amps and not just vintage reproduction guitars. They're, they got the mojo of the old thing, and then they also have the sensibilities of the modern thing. And I think that's what we really bring to the marketplace is this, uh, I'm, I've, I've been able to sort of execute this acute um, sensibility that Dave has about old and new. Mm -hmm. So yeah, they're exactly. not old yeah. and they're not new. They're, they're an amalgamation of that. And, and that's what makes, I think what we're doing, certainly the amps are just stupid good. I'm, you just plug in and it's like right there. It's in mm -hmm. your face. Um, and I, and I think the guitars meet that same standard. I mean, we've had very experienced players pick them up and go, what the hell? Yeah, I, really. Yeah, exactly. Like, like for instance, like Steve Stevens took a, a new one on his uh, solo tour he's on in Europe right now. He's giving it a workout over there. Mm -hmm. And, you know, he's just like, wow, this is fantastic. These pickups are fantastic. The guitar is fantastic. I love playing it. And it's just been great. Steve's picky and, uh, and I, he knows what he likes and, uh, he doesn't, you know, he doesn't kind of uh, beat around the bush with me. He, he lets me know, you know, and, uh, and for that coming from him, it's a, it's a high compliment. So. Yeah. And I actually saw him playing it. He was using it on, um, uh, he did an atomic playboy song and, yeah, he said, I think he had four or five songs in the set that he uses in it. Yeah. yeah, it looked good. Yeah. It, definitely nice. Nice. It was nice a non-aged non Cali, uh, black with the maple neck. Yeah, it didn't look aged. Yeah, no, it was shiny yeah. and pristine, at least for a while. Yeah, it'll be aged soon. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So that's awesome. Yeah, I actually, I, I held on to, you know, your guitars up in Nam, and they're just gorgeous. They really are. They really are. Thank you. Thank yeah, you very much. I love them. Um, so we actually have a couple other questions uh, for you, Grover. Um, we have Stan Adams who wants to know, Grover, uh, who do you think is uh, one of the most underrated guitarists in, in your mind? Underrated? Yeah. Oh. Uh, hmm. Underrated. Uh, I'd have to think about that one. For, I mean, for me, guitar player, guitar playing starts with Jeff Beck. I mean, that's that's the the book, the chapter and verse. But underrated, um, I I don't have an answer. I'm sorry. I um, that's cool. If I was if I was going to give you one, it wouldn't be even an electric guitar guy. It would be an acoustic guy who's uh, no longer with us. He passed away, but. Uh, uh, I, I'm a huge Michael Hedges fan. Oh huge. yeah, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Me too, me too. On the Wyndham Hill uh, label, back yeah, in, yeah. I was really, I, I, I thought that guy was just amazing. Um, 
uh, Doug Aldrich came to visit me years ago and he had just been there by the record company and they'd given him a stack of CDs and he came up and he says, I don't know, this doesn't, you want this? And I went, yeah, it was live on the double planet. And uh, I still play that record almost weekly. And what was so valuable and important to me about Michael Hedges in terms of uh, underratedness, and unfortunately he's passed away, like I said, mm-hmm. was he, he was actually a trained composer. And I think that guitar players typically live in what I call this tyranny. And the tyranny is E-A-D-G-B-E. That's sort of the box that we view this thing in. There's a few people that'll tune down to D or maybe it's a seven string or something. But predominantly there's this, this box we live in. And because Hedges was not a guitar player first, he was a composer first. He didn't recognize that as the box he had to live in. Mm-hmm. And so he would tune the guitar however he needed to, to make the composition work. And so when I heard that, it, it was like sort of you're driving down the road and then somebody T-bones you. <laughs> it's the word is that, what? How, 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 what? How, how do you get that racket out of EADG? Well, you can't. Right. It doesn't come from there. And there's there's a comment on one of the records where he's, he's thanking one of his professors in school. And, he's, and the comment is he thanked him for teaching him what not to play, which I think is brilliant. Hmm. Um, the essence of music is playing the thing that you need to play, not everything you can play, but play the stuff that's really important. And that's one of the reasons, and I'm rambling all over the place again, sorry. No. That's one of the things that's so beautiful about, about Beck is, is that um, he played, he, he actually said it in a guitar player interview years ago, he said, I want to go on stage and play one note and have everybody, have everybody fall out. And if you get there, that mm-hmm. sort of Zen center thing where you've got that one note, that's all you got to play. There's just something really fantastic about that concept uh of finding the 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 only thing that needs to be played to make the music speak. What's getting there so esoteric in here? <laughs> Jesus. Let's get back to whiskey. <laughs> Single malt scotch. Yeah. You mean you mean this? Ah. You know, I bought one of those. I that's too peaty for me. Yeah, that's it's too- it's very smoky. Yeah. It's a burnt yeah. wood is basically what it is. <laughs> it's it's funny. I thought that too at first, and then all of a sudden, I don't know. I like it now. So <laughs> it grew on you. It grew on me. What can That's you cool. do? <laughs> uh, I'm, a, I'm a beer dude. If I'm going to drink, I got. I have to have a beer. I didn't. You know what? I, I have to thank George Metropolis for my new newly acquired uh, Scotch maybe addiction. So uh, thanks, George. Uh, it's all your fault. <laughs> Who at some point we're going to have on the show. Yeah, we should definitely have George on the show. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, he makes great stuff, great amps. Yeah. And you know what? I saw today also, Dave, um, I didn't know that you were working with uh, Wampler on their amp, that you, uh, you gave them, you provided them the, uh, the effects loop. Uh, yeah, the effects loop for the amp that they did and a little yeah. consulting here and there. Yeah, but yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, I didn't know that. Yeah, I read that today, as a matter of fact. Um, So, Grover, you were talking about 
most of the guitars that you've, almost all the guitars you you've brought up so far have been electric guitars. Did you ever gravitate towards building acoustic guitars, or was that ever part of your? I was trained as an acoustic builder, but it's there never was any opportunity for track financial traction. I mean, again, uh, like being a guitar player, being a guitar maker. I mean, you you gravitate towards this because you love the instrument, and the craft. Yeah. Uh, and then there's the business side. There's the economics of, you know, I mean, I don't know if garbage collectors, you know, decide, yeah, I'm going to be the greatest garbage collector, shoe salesman in the world. No offense to either job, but I don't think people, but for the music industry, you gravitate toward this because you love it. And then this, this ugly cloud comes over your head and it's called business. Oh shit. I mean, I got to mix, do something I just wanted to play guitar. I didn't want to worry about business. Right, you got to pay the bills, but really. You got to pay the bills, so you know. Um, got to pay the taxes, pay the bills, pay the city, pay the DWP, pay the this and that and everything else, and mm-hmm. all the fun goes drips out of it. <laughs> it. It gets harder and harder to retain the joy of of, of the passion of doing something you love when you get hammered with, with the, the realities of life, which is that you've got to take care of the bills. So anyway. So, so acoustics were just not something just that would sell. Not, not yeah. something that, you know, um, uh, the folks down at Taylor are good friends of mine. I've known Bob a long time and God bless them. I mean, that's Mecca. Uh, they found a formula that worked and it made sense for them. And uh, they've done very, very well at it. I just never got that. F- there's that. There's that line um, from that Robbie Robertson song uh, down the la- lazy river, crazy river. How, how did you end up at Madam Whatever's palm reading thing? I guess the wind just blew me that way. I love that line. I guess <laughs> the wind just blew me this way. Yeah. Uh, so, and that's the music business. It sort of blows you in a direction. Well, I think it's blown you in the right direction. Well, there's, you know, there's been good, there's been, uh, like the guy said, baseball been very, very good to me. <laughs> Who said that, by the way? Um, Oscar Valenzuela. Oh, there you go. I think I think that was who said that. I, I'm I'm a nut about about uh, sayings and th- things that people say and aphorisms. Um, That's funny. But something very important to me in in my life once said that th- those old sayings stay around because there's some kernel of truth in them, and so they should be preserved and then reflected on occasionally you know, to help you direct your life. And uh, I think that person was right about that. Mm-hmm. I usually just give movie quotes. Oh, um, <laughs> I'm horrible with that. Are you, are you, are you, a, are you a fan of uh, the British gangster movies? British gangster movies? Yeah. Snatch. Oh, I love that movie, but no, I don't, I don't know any quotes from that one though. No, thanks Turkish. I'm sweet enough. I, that I wanted, to say, I wanted to use that as the ringtone on my phone. <laughs> That's a great movie. I haven't seen it in a long time. Oh, I've watched it probably fifty times. Really? Yeah. yeah. That's yeah. a classic. I, I actually, 
wanted to do. Oh, I shouldn't give this away. Fuck it, I'll give it away. Um, <laughs> uh, I, I wanted to go to uh, the guy that played Bricktop, um, the gangster in right, Snatch, right. and have him do a guitar, a YouTube, little short YouTube video where he's just sitting in a chair holding the guitar and going, you can sort of buy these things because they're really great. Of course, I don't know anything about guitars. What the hell do I know about guitars? And just have him do that brick top thing. And it would, I swear to God, it would go viral. A million people would watch that because he's such a strong character in that movie. Oh, he's great in that movie. We should investigate Stop that. Me again. Stop me again whilst I'm walking and I'll cut your Jacobs off. I just, the lines are just great, man. That's funny. See, I'm more of like a, I'll I'll quote like Seinfeld, or uh, you know like uh, Die Hard, or you know <laughs> stupid stupid stuff like that. Or but, wait 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 wait, one of the greatest movies of all times, Slapshot. I haven't I haven't seen it. You yep. gotta be kidding me, really? Yeah. Oh, great. Really? Oh my god. <laughs> that that's just like a '70s movie though, right? When uh, yeah, I, I, um, hmm. yeah, I think it's seventies, late seventies or uh, early, maybe eighty or something, or you know. Okay, yeah. I'll but, have to check it out. No, you gotta watch that. That is, the, you like hockey? First yeah, wait, wait, wait. Maybe I have seen that. Is that the movie where they have like the twin brothers? Yes. Who are like kicking the crap? Yes, okay. Of course. I ha- yes, I have seen that. Yes, okay. All right, now I'll throw my note out that I, yes, I have seen that movie. Yeah. All right, there you go. <laughs> well, you need to revisit it because it's really funny. <laughs> yes, it's been a long time, but I do remember that. Yeah, they had the, the brothers who were just kicking the crap out of everybody. Who was the coach? Paul Newman. Paul Newman, that's right. Yeah. Okay. It's all coming back to me now. The Hanson Brothers, baby. Yes. From Pete, Peter. <laughs> I'm looking at the thing. <laughs> That's and, a great movie. And then there's all the Coen Brothers movies. Oh, yeah. There's great lines in, in all the Coen Brothers movies. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That little, um, at Raising Arizona, at the very end, that little oh. thing that, that Nicolas Cage does about looking into the future. That's just one of the greatest little monologues in the history of movies that is an underrated movie but then um true romance oh yeah between between walken and um um uh what's his name um uh uh right right before uh, christopher walken kills him um dennis hopper yeah you know the scene i'm talking about Mm mm-hmm I can't I, remember. I, I just think that's Quentin Tarantino wrote that. Really? Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. That was one of his first things. He 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 wrote the script for that and based True on romance. The, yeah. Really? Well, I didn't know that. That's a long time ago. It was. Yeah. I have to stop to revisit it. So many movies, so little time. It's like so much to watch these days. It's just crazy. Um, I, you know, I don't know. You know, sometimes I think uh, they think the movies today um, they seem to be getting worse and worse and rehashing the same thing over and over again. And 
and or making remakes of stuff that should never be remade. I totally um, agree. Um, it's so I, th- I find it more and more every year less and less good films are made. I agree with that. I'm not saying there's not some, but it's so rare that I get something that was really good, you know? Yeah. And like you said, they just keep rehashing, not, not necessarily revamping stories, but literally rebooting things that have no yeah. business being remade. Exactly. It's just unbelievable. I mean, the first thing that just pops in my head is uh, the Ghostbusters thing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no no yeah, one had no. an inkling that was going to be a complete disaster. I mean, the, the first one, you know, it's a classic. Why? But, I mean, there's so many others that I just can't even. I, I know. I'm, I'm waiting for, uh, you know, the reboot of E.T. Come on. <laughs> you know, it's 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 coming. I'm, I guarantee it's coming somewhere, somehow. Right, right, right. You know. Oh, they, re, like they, they remade the movie The Thing. Which was such a great '80s movie. Of course, that was from the, even a '50s horror movie, but they remade that. They remade American Werewolf in London. I mean, it's all these horror movies oh, yeah. they they remade. You know, like it's gotten to the point now where I see a, a movie on TV. Like I'll be scrolling and I'll see, oh, it's Halloween, and, I'll, and my wife will go, "Well, is it which one is it? Is it the one that was when we made when we were kids, or the one that's made now?" <laughs> well, now now isn't John Carpenter doing yet another one? I did hear I mean, that. I mean, I I don't think he was very happy with the Rob Zombie versions, but I, I personally, I mean, I think the Rob Zombie versions were fantastic movies. I love the uh, Rob I, Zombie I, version. I I I actually generally always like his movies. Yeah, he he does a good job. Yeah. Have you ever seen it, Grover? No, I haven't. I'm yeah. I'm not a horror movie guy. No, no then definitely you don't want to watch any of them. Then. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he I takes mean, it to a whole new level. Yeah, to the disturbing something, level. <laughs> something that I, I do watch over and over um, is all the original uh, Sherlock Holmes movies from the 30s with Basil Rathbone. Oh, I wow. love those movies. Huh. I, I, I love the, the set design. Uh, it's cheesy. Um, I love the fact that they're black and white. Uh, and, and I just thought that Basil, of all of the people who've played Sherlock Holmes, I, Basil Rathbone was my favorite. I, I love those movies. I watch those over and over. Were those U.S. made or were they overseas, like uh, uh, England? I think they were made in London. Yeah. I think they were made over there. But there's this sort of whole ambience uh, about them that's, that's really great. I, I love movies from the 30s anyway, uh, just as it was becoming an art form. Mm-hmm. Some great movies in that era. Yeah, I can't say I've, I've watched many from that particular time. Dave, what about you? From that time? No. You know what? To be honest, no. I haven't either. But uh, now I'm kind of curious. So now i can go watch. <laughs> I've always loved Sherlock Holmes. Always loved it. I'm uh, looking for something to watch because I, I don't find enough to watch, actually. <laughs> At yeah. least that keeps my interest. Yeah. I'm hooked on stupid uh, superhero stuff as you can probably tell with my Captain America shield and some of my other things. I like that stuff. So um, I'm a bit geeky on that. But other than that, anything intellectual, I'm, I'm probably lacking on the TV. <laughs> <laughs> of more recent stuff, the, I, I would say the stuff that I like is the Chinese stuff. You know, uh, Crouching Tiger, um, 
all of those Hong Kong movies, I, I, there's some really great stuff in there. And I, and I think that one actress that, that's in a lot of those is just one of the most beautiful women that ever lived. And that Zhang Ji is just an amazing uh, woman. Um, what's, what's uh, oh, um, House of the Flying uh, Daggers. Um, there's, a, there's about a half a dozen of those movies. Some Ang Lee and some are not. Uh, the photography is just staggering. Hmm. And the, the stories, oh, um, Hero with um um what's his name the martial arts guy um uh, hero is great the, the plot the the intricacy of the plot i thought was really great loved that movie that's the name of the movie hero hero yeah jet lee okay. it's a jet lee movie i'll have to check that out and shang is in that movie as um, but it's a it's a it's a a group, it's a, what do they call that? Uh, a, a group piece. There's no one star. It's a bunch of people. Really great. And the photography is obscene. There's, there's a fight scene between the two girls where they're in a forest. And the screen just, the, there's leaves falling as they're fighting with, with the swords. And the, the leaves change color. It's, it's crazy. Crazy good. I'll check it out. You ever see that, Dave? No, actually, I haven't. Yeah. Hey, 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 Grover. You know, you've had a relationship also with David Gilmore. I have, correct? I yeah. So yeah. this is kind of a fascinating thing, also. Um, I um, uh, the guy that was um. Eric Clapton's tech years ago was a guy, one of the Tulsa, that Tulsa crew, a guy named Willie Spears. And he and I were friends and uh, he introduced me um, to the Pink Floyd crew. And then in um, what year was that? Shit, I don't remember. 80, maybe when the wall was done, the wall, the wall was, was uh, recorded in England, but they, they actually decamped and, and came to Los Angeles for about the move to whole everything over here. Cause Pink Floyd is like a small country. When they move, uh, they came over here and did overdubs and mastered the record here at the mastering lab up on Hollywood Boulevard, which is no longer there. Right. Um, and I got to know Dave then um, made him a couple of guitars and uh, yeah, known Dave a long time. In fact, it, um, uh, in the book, The Black Strat, it's, it's acknowledged that the black Fender Strat for the longest time had a Charvel neck on it. <laughs> really? Yeah. Yeah, it did for a long time. Did, so, it, uh, did it not have a logo on it? It was just blank or? Uh, gee, I don't remember that. Uh, I, don't, I don't think it had a logo on it, no. Yeah. Unless Phil Taylor put one on. Phil was my connection. Phil's worked for Dave for, you know, really his whole adult life and just an unbelievable guy. He, when, because they don't do that much anymore. So, uh, so Phil actually is the administrator of, uh, the boat. Uh, yeah, the studio, the boat, uh, um, yeah, um, I can't remember um, the name either. <laughs> I'm drawing a blank. Come on, someone out there. You know the name. Tell us. Uh, it's not Victoria. Uh, it's uh, 
uh, it's, it's actually a hundred year old boat. It was a gambling casino or something. Oh, it's a beautiful it in, disre yeah. in, in disrepair, and they bought it and, and put a lot of money into it. But it's it is a world class studio. Astoria, Astoria. Astoria. Yeah, yep, yep, yep. Weren't you weren't you saying though you were at his house once or something or uh, um, yeah, or, or am I not for? No, no, that yeah, I went and hung with they. It, it was really funny. This is quite some time ago. There's a million guitars in the wall, right? All his guitars are up on like hanging on the wall. Well, this, this is out in Henley. Uh, in fact, we drove by the famous George Harrison house, you know. Mm -hmm. uh, and Phil says, "Oh, that's that's George's place there." And so we go over to Dave's house, and it was a, I don't know, 15th, 16th century home. It was an old farm, and there was a milking barn that, that Dave had turned into a studio, Neve console and the whole deal. But when you walk in the front door, it looked like a guitar center because there was a wall of guitars. Right, yeah. And one of the amazing things about Dave is that he he knew exactly what he could get out of each they, they weren't there to be to be show pieces they weren't there because he had the money to be able to buy exotic things some of them were exotic and some of them weren't they just they filled a particular sonic requirement that he had and he right. knew exactly what he could get out of every single one of them but to sort of date the story we spent the day out there, went and had went to a little country pub and had a plowman's lunch and I mean did the whole, you know, real country kind of thing. It was a wonderful day for me. Um but during the course of the day, Phil and I were out in the studio doing something, Dave comes out and he says, Oh, let me show you this. And he had a Lindrum. This is when Lindrums had first came out. And he says, Look, what you can do, and he starts programming a little drum pattern. And I'm standing there with Dave Gilmore, realizing that he's doing a demo for me. Yeah, you're standing there with Dave Gilmore, and you're looking at him, and you're going, wait a minute, that's Dave Gilmore. Wait, is he trying to sell me one of these things? What's the deal? What's going on here? Yeah. It was, it was just one of those kind of moments where you go, I don't know, does life get any better than this? Yeah, pinch me. This is, uh, this is pretty good. Yeah, I've had a couple of those moments over the years, you know, uh, you know. When you're standing next to like Ed Van Halen and he's playing through an amp and you're about two feet from him and and you're just sitting there going, wait a minute, I'm two feet from Ed Van Halen and he's playing this amp. Yeah. <laughs> it's yeah. like, wow, okay. <laughs> and that's one of the benefits of being on this side of the industry is that yeah. those those very rare and wonderful experiences happen um, occasionally. And you get to be in the presence of something uh, amazing. So that's, yeah. that's one of the perks. And it's yeah. great to hear you guys talk about that because you guys have obviously had that luxury or had that benefit of doing that. And sometimes for people who haven't, they feel like, oh, maybe you just take it for granted. You don't necessarily live in that moment and really take it in and, and think to yourself like, wow, uh, this, is, this is an awesome moment for me too, you know? Well, I mean, you know, it's, it's funny because you do get jaded to some degree because, you you know, Jim or Jack or Joe or Bobby or whoever. And, mm -hmm. and but then there are a few people where you just go, wait a minute. <laughs> no, this is surreal. This is this yeah. is beyond the pale. Yeah, exactly. Um, 
it, it's sort of funny, uh, like all the, all the people I grew up listening to when I was a kid and the shows that I would see, I've kind of wound up working for in the end. Right. Uh, which is, which is kind of every once in a while, I'll just sit back and go, wow, that's, that's kind of a trip, you know, you know, I'm just, uh, <laughs> you know, every once in a while, you know, I'm so used to doing it now. It, it's not really, it doesn't really phase me at the time, but every once in a while you sit back and you go, wow, if you would have told me this when I was 16 years old, I would have told you you were not Couldn't happen. Not Couldn't happen. No way. Uh-uh. Yeah. No way. Which, which is, which is great. You know, it's is awesome. Yeah. That's yeah. Uh, kudos to you both. Hey, I got a question for you, Grover. Some, mm. uh, my friend David sent me a question. He just texted me. He wanted to know, how many necks did you destroy when you were trying to uh, learn how to put the Floyd, note, uh, Floyd nut on, a, on guitars or in the early, in like the late 70s, 79, around there or anything like that? He's just curious. Very few. I think we, we, we got that pretty quick. I think we, we understood that the idea pretty quick. We were really, because we were, we were all struggling with Fender-style tremolos, Mm-hmm. There wasn't a proliferation of, of tremolos, so if you wanted a, a trim in those days, it was a steel block, hopefully pre-zinc die-cast block uh, Fender-style tremolo. And so when the when the Floyd came out, it was like that was a big, big deal for us, big deal. And we were very careful about how we learned how to install those. You know, this, God damn. Wait, sorry. Yeah, at the same at the same time, um, do you remember? What else came out around the same time too? The Rockinger. Yeah, I, the German, uh, right? Yeah. Well, he's still around. Dieter Rockinger's still. He lives in oh, yeah. Spain now. Um, I just I mean, remember that. And early, early Kramers actually had some Rockinger on it before Floyd. Yep, they did. That's exactly mm-hmm. right. It's just and, someone reminded me of that the other day, and I was like, "Oh yeah, I think I had a guitar with that once." <laughs> well. Funny, it's sort of an extension of the Dave Gilmore stuff. Um, you, uh, I guess you'd have to blame me for the Kaler tremolo. Um, oh no! <laughs> that, I'm sorry. Yeah. So, so I, I, I over, man. I, I, I had this, you know, not long after the Floyd was here for, for the Wall. Yeah. Um, they finished the, the Wall. Originally, was only performed for four places, L.A., New York, Dortmund, Germany, and London. And then there was a break after that. And there was a guy in, working in London uh, music shops as a repair guy. His name was Dave Story. And Dave somehow got Story, got to Dave Gilmore with this idea for this tremolo. And since Dave had just been here in L.A., he said, well, I don't know anything about making stuff. You should call Grover Jackson. And Dave's story flew over from London to L.A. and came in my office and said, Dave Gilmore told me to bring this tremolo and you could make it for me. And I said, well, no, I'm not. A, I, I am a metal worker now, but in those days I was not. We were woodworking people only. But Gary Kaler was a friend of mine. And I said, why don't you take this bridge and go to Gary Kaler? Well, that was the Kaler Bridge. Hmm. So it's all your fault. That's how that's how Gary Kaler got the Kaler Bridge, and for the longest time, it was the Dave Story Bridge. But that, yeah. Do you know, you know how many guitars you wrecked? Yeah, I'm afraid so. <laughs> Actually, Kaler's still a friend of mine, and you know, um, um, 
for a long time. I don't. I haven't seen. You've seen Trevor Rabin recently, haven't you, Dave? Uh, I I actually met him recently, uh, but but I don't know what he's doing or using now. Right now, I I think with his new thing that he's doing with Yes or or the Rabin, whatever it is, uh, I think he's using an Axe Effects actually. So I mean, uh, oh really? I'm pretty I'm pretty well, sure, but uh, but I think still the same guitars he's had forever. I think. I made him a couple of guitars, and he he was a Kaler fan uh, back in the day. He was a Kaler fan. Um, he's an incredible player. Oh yeah, unbelievable yes. player. Absolutely, but it was a pleasure to meet him. Extremely eccentric style. He at the time he was using seven gauge strings mm-hmm. tremolo, which sounded just like a complete banjo to me. <laughs> but mm-hmm. I mean, he had these two gigantic racks of gear and when he plugged in and played it was trevor rabin absolutely right. he was amazing sounding uh, he was a he's he's maybe an yeah. underrated guitar player there there's your there's, underrated, there's your underrated guitar player mm-hmm. um and and that's that first solo record that he did is one of my favorite records in the world he did it with bob ezrin from well bob ezrin from everything i've, I've met bob before yeah yeah Unbelievable! They they did that record together up at Trevor's house, oh. um, and that's a great record. Great drum sound on that record. I mean, that's I forget who played drums on that record, but whoever he was, was a hitter. I mean, a real hitter. Uh, what a drum sound! And I don't know this um, for a fact, but the band GTR was that Trevor Rabin also. Uh, you remember that band G- GTR? I barely remember that. That was from I, the that was from the eighties. I'm gonna, I'm actually gonna look it up. Google right. it. I yeah, I, I don't know. <laughs> Google I'm, that. I'm googling it right now. GTR band. Um, I'm Maybe. pretty sure. I'm pretty sure Trevor Rabin was in there. Uh, oh, it was uh, by uh, Asia guitarist Steve Howe. That's who it was. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah, uh, Steve. Trevor's Howe's gone the- on to have a fabulous career um, doing movie soundtracks. Um, Done a lot of work in in that area. Huge fan, huge huge fan. Yeah, he was, oh, he, he, was he was always great. I mean that one that one yes or two yes records, but especially that first one um, yeah. that he had done. Uh, what great sounds on that record! I mean mm-hmm. that was just fantastic, and such a unique he's a, playing. Yeah, the, um, he's South African, but came to prominence as a studio musician in London, and I remember talking to him one time because i i went to berkeley for a little while and we were talking about music theory and stuff and and uh he basically can anything he plays on guitar he can play on keyboards he's as good on keyboards as he is on guitar and i said something oh well you know it's tough to be if you don't read a lot and he says yeah I, i read you know a lot of stuff he says basically if a fly shits on the wall i can play it and i believe him (laughs) Um, so he's a really schooled musician. Yeah. Really uh, yeah. great. Yeah, yeah, amazing. Um, we had a question come in. Uh Grover, have you worked for have you ever done any work with Brad Gillis? And that came from Keith Bears or or the Guitar Guru Network. Uh I I, I did a little bit of work with, with Brad. Um and he had that old Fender strat that I as far as I know, he's still playing that same old yeah, original guitar. Falling so, apart. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Great player. He and, he and Watson both. Amazing oh, yeah. player. 
Yeah, definitely. I don't know what Jeff's up to these days, but and uh, and uh, our 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 guy from the Trans Siberian took Watson's place for a while. Yeah, he? Joel Olkster. Yep, 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 yep. Absolutely. And uh, yeah, and he has a nice uh, sparkly white. Uh, non-aged uh, vintage tea with uh, some gold hardware on it and sustainer in it too. Yeah. Cause he needed Have you that. Seen him since he came back. I haven't seen him since he came back, but man, he told me he loved that guitar for that, that whole tour. Yeah. Yeah. So great player. Yeah. Awesome. Well, I think we've, uh, I don't, let's see. Oh, here's, here's a, another question. Um, and I don't know the answer to it, and I'm not. Uh, I, if it's not a good question, please tell me. Um, someone wants to know what happened to Wayne Charvel. I, I know I don't know. Um, well, I, there's probably a couple of answers to that. The first one would be, who cares? Um, <laughs> <laughs> See, I shouldn't have asked the question. No, you should have asked the question. That's good. Look, that's um, what this show's about, so, by the way. Okay, so, there you go. so truthfulness. So let me, let me be yes. candid about that, okay? I'm going to be as gentle and kind as I can be about this. Um, he's a very personable guy, a likable guy, um, um, with almost no work ethic at all. Just really a, a guy. Uh, um, had no interest in working. He, he liked to hang out. And... Uh, um, his, his son has, has done a very good job over the years, who was just a little tight when he left, mm-hmm. um, at sort of claiming credit for things they never had anything to do with. So if that sounds bitter and angry, i sorry. You know, it's just the truth. I, they make copies of guitars that I made mm-hmm. for Warren Martini. They make Wayne was long gone before Warren Martini ever came on the scene. They made copies of Oz Fox guitars that Oz was my neighbor and had nothing, didn't even know Wayne Charvel. It's, it's like sort of icky. Well, primarily, know? primarily no Charvel guitars really had been made until you took over the company. Is that correct? He or, had bought- or maybe like a few things. Nothing was made. There were some things assembled. He, he assembled out of fender parts. Right. Wayne, Wayne actually was not a bad painter. He was fairly good with nitro. Um, and he was an author. The, Wayne, the Charvel Guitar Repair was an authorized refinish center for Ovation and Fender and I think one other company, which I don't remember who it was. So he knew how to paint. Mm-hmm. Well, there was a fellow in the early Fender history named Steve Bullinger, who's passed away now, ran ran this what they called the service center at Fender. And he would slip cell cell necks uh, to Wayne. And Wayne had a friend named named uh, Lynn Ellsworth who started Boogie Bodies. Boogie Bodies right. became Warmoth. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, and so Wayne made took a boogie body body and uh, a fender neck and made a guitar for John Cipollina from Cipollina Big Brother Holding Company, Hmm. San Francisco 60s flower power band. Uh Uh, Made a bass, made a bass for John Entwistle uh, through Alan Rogan. 
um, maybe, maybe a half a dozen instruments, but none of the bodies and necks were ever made inside Charvel. No guitars were completely created in Charvel. The original white and black Van Halen guitar was a boogie body body mm -hmm. and a boogie body neck. It was mm -hmm. not made at the shop. The black and yellow, different story. But the white and black one on the first record was not, Wayne didn't make that. Right. Lynn Ellsworth made that stuff. Uh, and the original black and white one was a white body with electrical tape on it. Mm -hmm. There wasn't painted black stripes. That was electrical tape. Mm -hmm. So, in a, I, I sort of find Wayne Charvel a sad character because he, he never found his own voice. It's Yeah, and, and yet they're still selling Charvels out there based on your designs, right? Uh, yeah, I think they call them Wayne guitars is what they call them. Yeah. And I saw one. It's pretty dreadful. It's Ooh. Ah, nice. Um, well, this which is, is, the, you which know. is I just wanted to one of the things that I sort of resent, uh, resent about uh, the industry, uh, and actually you started this with calling me a luthier. I, no offense, but I hate that term. Uh, oh, tell me why. Uh, that's what I am telling you, is, is that you have people in this industry who are functional idiots. They're non-functional idiots. And they stand shoulder to shoulder with geniuses. Um, I had an opportunity. Dave sent me over to the little section of custom guitar stuff that was at NAM mm -hmm. um, to look at some instruments as reference. Mm -hmm. And I ran into Steve Klein. Steve Klein's a giant, a, a giant, okay, a genius. And uh, a guy like that has to stand shoulder to shoulder to guys who – are buying a body over here and a neck over there, and they get somebody else to do this and that and the other, and they go, they say, "Well, I'm a luthier." No, you're a Lutheran. That's what you are. You're, you're, <laughs> you're, no, you make me want to puke. And um, there, there are there are real uh, some really really brilliant people who do this craft, mm -hmm. and uh, I I sure wish the people that were really brilliant could be separated. Maybe we come up with a different term for them. Mm -hmm. You know, something Crab, that you're not something you're not allowed to use if you're a charlatan. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Maybe I'm being too pedantic or whatever. No, I, no, this is exactly what needs to be said. I don't think uh, I, you know. The, the, I think this will be a new the common trait in this show. I think is going to be Frank talk about whatever it is we're talking about. I mean, it's, I, I don't, there's no reason not to. No bullshit. No, no, yeah, no, I, no real I, bullshit. And, and, you know, it's like, and, and we're not out to harm anyone, but, but no bullshit. Yeah. I think that would be really refreshing. And I, and I hope that you are able to do that. And I, I, uh, I hope, maybe, not, maybe we'll see. Not in the meantime. <laughs> Not in a mean-spirited way. No, but not at all. In an honest way. Yeah. You know? Just the facts. Um, um, I, I think that's refreshing is to just tell the damn truth. 
yeah. you know, without intention to hurt anybody's feelings or anything. You know, I don't want to hurt Wayne Charvel's feelings. I, I, you know, he's not important enough for me to worry about that. Uh, but I just don't, I don't carry that with me, that mean-spirited sort of thing to try to run somebody down. At the same time, the truth is the truth. And somebody may think I'm an idiot, and that's fine. They can think that. I don't care. <laughs> <laughs> not everybody's going to like you. I've learned that, at least in my lifetime. Mm, just learn yeah. something. You're just not going to please everybody and not going to make friends with everybody, unfortunately. It's just the way it is. Yeah. So, yeah. So let me jump back to the chat here. Dave, you have any uh, anything else you want to bring up? Uh, uh, you know, other than the uh, the further dime bag story, which Grover wants to save, um, I don't think so. At least not that comes to mind right this second. Give me a minute, though. <laughs> uh, we have a question here. If uh, Grover and David will be at Summer Nam. We are, or I am. I think Grover I is. I, I it, it has not been um the, the powers be. that be have not made it have not you know, have not uh made that uh, determination yet i i'm available um i'm from tennessee so going home is always you know important to me um, yeah i'm going to be i'm going to we're going to be friedman's going to be at summer nam uh or the whole boutique amps distribution group is going to be at summer nam for the first time ever so uh, should be interesting. I imagine Grover, you might be going. Okay. Um, that would be. That'd be I great. I hope so. I hope so. That'd be fun. We're gonna bring. Uh, I think I'm gonna bring Dave Black out too. Also, hang out and uh, go from there. We'll be looking for fried chicken livers. And and two weeks earlier, we're gonna be at Sweetwater also. So at their Gear Fest. At the outside gear fest. At least, at least I will be at the outside sweat box known as Gear Fest. Very cool. I'm going to be in Nashville also. I will be at NAM with you guys. Great. Oh, cool. So we're going to do the show from there then, right? Yes. I think that would be a good idea. Yeah, definitely. Pick a nice bar. Wait, you know what? You'll pick a nice bar. Whoever's got Wi Fi that works. <laughs> exactly. And um, maybe we'll have Brian Wampler on. That would he's be gonna, he's gonna be at the booth, so that'd be good. That'd be a good guest. He doesn't know it yet, but you're booked, Brian. All right, <laughs> <laughs> done. I'm putting it done. on the calendar. <laughs> All right. Well, I'm just gonna I'm gonna say a few more thanks to a few people who are in here. Uh, we've got so many people. Luke Melanson said really enjoyed this. Uh, we got so many great comments about the no bullshit. We're going to be completely uh, honest on this show. A lot of people have given us thumbs up on that. Um, someone wrote, would love to see Brian Wampler on here. Um, uh, great that we're going to be at Summer Nam. Uh, great first show. Show is gold. A um, lot of great comments about you, Grover. Uh, just having you on is just amazing. And uh, sorry I called you a luthier. <laughs> 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 but, I, I don't uh, think Grover's going to take it personally. Okay. No. All right. You won't hit me next time I see you. No. Well, depends on how much alcohol is involved. <laughs> <laughs> well, I want to thank everybody, both of you guys. Dave, thank you for uh, for doing the show. Uh, just being partners with you again is a dream come true. Grover, having you on the show is awesome. Um, but, Dave, uh, can I interrupt you? Yeah. I, interrupt saw, you. I, saw, I saw one question real quick. Uh, uh, for, for Grover, uh, Grover, 
Um, how do you feel now seeing Jackson and Charvel guitars made by Fender? Um, you know, you, you make the best deal you can when, when you do. And right. uh, I, I don't, I mean, I, I, I try not to have too many regrets in life. Uh, you play the ball where it's laying. Um, um, there's, there's been several instances over the last 20 years where there was a, a potential that I might get recover my brand name again at this stage in life. I don't think that's probably likely anymore. Mm. Um, I, it's a little embarrassing what they've done with it. Um, I actually would be happier, even if I wasn't seeing any, you know, financial benefit, if it, it had at least been maintained as what it was originally intended to be, which was a quality guitar company. Right. Um, which I don't believe it is. Um, um, but in terms of personally, you know, um, regrets are tough, man. <laughs> right. There's other, things, there's other things in life that I regret more. I guess than than that. Um, there's no way to not say that that uh, there's not an occasional twinge of of pain or anger or whatever. I'm human. Um, it is what it is. It it, it really had a, there was a minute there where it could have been a great. American brand. I mean, a great brand, something bringing. And when I say great brand, I don't mean that it made a lot of money. You got to make money. Obviously, we've talked about that. But it, it could have been a, a company that brought great products to an industry that I love, that's, that, that supported me my whole life. And I, um, it's sad. It's just, it's just turned into kind of a money pig. Corporate. Kind of, corporate. Yeah. It's it's a, it's an emblematic of what's wrong with corporate America. Right. Jeez. Wake up. Yeah. <laughs> Wake up. <laughs> I'm glad I asked that question because that was a good response. No, it's great. Fantastic. More in line with what we're talking about, right? How about this, Dave? We got a good question. Um, any chance of a Steve Stevens signature distortion pedal? Well, no, because he already did it. <laughs> oh, you mean the uh, the overdrive with the the uh, Rockaway yeah, Archer? Yeah, 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 Rockaway Archer. Yeah, that's not really a distortion though. That's that's more of like an overdrive, right? Um, I have an Archer. I, I, you know what? I won't rule that out. And if we have him on the show, which I'm sure we will, mm -hmm. uh, you can you can flat out ask him. Okay. <laughs> yeah, because I, I have an Archer. I mean, and the way that he, I think the way that Steve uses it is exactly the way that I use it. I use it, which is all the way down. Like, no, it's yeah. not. It's boost. more as a boost, right? Yeah. Then, so. well, well, in his guitar rig and stuff that I've made for years, uh, he he's always had a, um, a overdrive pedal or some sort of boost pedal with an EQ after it. Mm -hmm. So that's sort of where that came from. So he could he could basically boost and then shape the tone right. with the graphic uh, how he saw that he needed it to be at that moment. He's and changed that he's changed that boost pedal out a um, hundred times, different right. everything different over and over and over again. 
Um, and uh, so, you know, now I, you know, I put together his little board for him that he took on the solo tour. And I, I heard that pedal for the first time and I thought it sounded great. It was, it was very yeah. cool pedal. It's getting a lot of great reviews, actually, that pedal. Yeah, yeah. yeah. really yeah, they, cool. They said that, they, and it was actually a pretty cool idea to mix, you know, an EQ with a, with a you yeah, know. Yeah, an overdrive pedal just with an EQ instead of yeah. just a tone knob. So it gave you a full graphic. It's a full graphic EQ in case you never saw it, Grover, with like a gain and a, and a master pot, you know. And uh, mm. so it's like a six-band EQ, graphic EQ. So you really can make it whatever you want it to be. Uh, it's an overdrive or it's a boost or whatever with the EQ curve you want it to be. So it, very cool. It, if I could just sort of chime in for just a second about Steve, because I made guitars for Steve back in the 80s. Oh, you did? And, uh, I didn't know. Uh, yeah, but, oh, wouldn't that be the 90s with the Washburn? Or? I did Washburn. And then, oh, and then you Charvel, yeah, back in the – Yeah, yeah. Charvel. Um, Glow. I just, yeah, I, I thought that band uh, in the pantheon of bands in that era. Okay, a lot of bands, a lot of shows. Um, I thought that band, and I always like to say this is, I thought that band was just as good as anybody on the road, maybe better. Mm-hmm. Uh, when they hit the stage, for me, it's it's all about um, do they leave, leave everything on the stage. Is there nothing left to do when they leave? Right. And, uh, that's the, that Billy Idol band in the eighties was just about as deadly an outfit as you could find. I, I thought they were murder. Um, it was great to see that band play because it, it was all in. I think the first time I saw it was uh, for, I think a little later than that, maybe could have been 89 or 90 at Ir- near you, Irvine Meadows, uh, mm-hmm. with the Whiplash Smile Tour with the Cult opening. Oh, I was at that show. That Oh, man, that was a great show. Uh, and I, I didn't really know the Cult that much at the time, but when, when I was done with the Cult, I was just like, wow, that was – it was like um, – like a different version of an ACDC. Like it was very powerful. Matt Sorum on drums and just extremely powerful and like five piece at the time with a second guitar player. And it was just like, no, they took no prisoners, the cult opening up and then came Mm. Steve and just bam, done great band. The classic band that you're talking about was what still there. Tommy price on drums and Kenny Aronson on bass a girl keyboard player, um, man, fantastic band. Yeah, he's still, yeah. He's still, he still maintains those. CDs. And he was playing the glow guitar. Yeah, yeah, Charvel glow guitar. Yeah, I was at that. Sh- at that, I mean, that was that was like a good punch in the nose. Yeah. Uh, and and that's that's what I look for. I look for, when I see a band. What I want to see is that commitment. Yeah, yeah. You know, punch you in the face and absolutely just, you know, just like vicious. I was, I, I was Yeah, and and uh, boy, they were that. Yeah. yeah, and there was a lot of bands in that era that that had started phoning it in, you know. Mm-hmm. And I wouldn't even, I wouldn't stay to a show like that. I just, mm-hmm. I no time for that bullshit. I, I want to, I want to see vicious, or I'm leaving. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that was a fantastic show. That was a particularly. I saw a lot of great shows go, growing up in Detroit, but that 
particular show I remember from LA as being a fantastic show. Hmm. Yeah. And what year is this? It was later. Yeah, you're right. It was. It was. Yeah, it, it must have been '89 or something. I mean, I moved here when it was '88, so it it had to be '88, '89, '90, somewhere in there. I, 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 you had look up the release of Whiplash Smile record, and and you'd know roughly what year it was, because it was the tour for that record. Hmm. Okay, so it's fantastic. Did, cool. did you know the producer of, of those records? Keith Forsey? Yeah, I met Keith Forsey um, years later. He did a record, a newer Billy Idol record with with Steve. And I mm. met him, I met him then. What a great guy. I mean, yeah. at the time he was living on a boat down in Marina Del Rey. I don't uh, know how I long think, he'd been. Yeah, I think they, they lost, he and his wife lost their house uh, in the earthquake too. Uh-huh. 84 earthquake. Yeah, he he was a he was a great guy when I met him. I I, I really enjoyed meeting him. Real talent, and and you know, that was a great, great minute we met. <laughs> Super cool. Um, I think we are out of questions. I think uh, we've got so many people in the chat. We have uh, Fu Tone is in the chat. Um, they make upgrades for Floyd Rose. A good friend of mine, John Friedman, is in the chat. Um, oh, yes, relation? John Friedman. Yes, any relation to no you? No relation Dave? to me. No <laughs> relation to you. Okay. All right. <laughs> you and I go way back. Rob Rob Welch from Tessie Switch is here. So we got a lot of great people, a lot of great friends, um, and which is which brings me to just some – I just wanted to thank some people who um, – I feel like I'm accepting an award here, but um, – I just wanted to thank some people who were really uh, good friends to me as I was setting up this show with Dave. Uh, of course, my wife, uh, Luke Melanson, uh, Dave and Johnny, Joe Suma, Pete Caruccio, Liquid Charlie, Gerd, uh, Jason McNamara, Adam uh, from Futone, F-U-Tone, um, Jim, Phil McKnight, Tony uh, Gallopo from the Van Halen page, Scott Smith, Sean Silas, my friend Ron, and uh, I'll mention my wife one last time. So just wanted to throw that out there, guys. Um, again, I'm Grover, it to me is just an honor to, to meet you. I know we met at NAM, but to, to sit and have this conversation with you, and it was just fantastic. To hear the stories. Yeah. yeah. There's more. There's more, actually. <laughs> Part two. Yeah. There's more stories, but no, you have to have a drink with them to do that. We'll okay. get back to Australia and and, uh, and Daryl later. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, when we're at Nam, maybe we'll have a few drinks and we'll start talking. Okay. Dave, any yeah. last parting thoughts? Uh, I want to thank everyone also for coming and uh, making the show what it is and what it will be because we're going to continue with this and uh, we're, you know both of us as hosts, I'm going to bring a lot of people on this show and. Uh, I hope you all you guys will watch and ask questions and uh, and all that. So um, I think that's it. I thank you everyone who's on Keith from Guitar Guru Network. I saw and uh, oh my god, I saw a bunch of people. I'm, I'm going to just say a blanket thank you because I can't. You know what? I can't read anymore. <laughs> I, need, I think I, I think I need reading glasses. Is what I've decided. Um, I know. I, I've, the doctor I says I have twenty twenty vision, but not when it's a small screen. <laughs> <laughs> How so, does that work? 
Well, I mean, like far away, yeah, I have 2020 vision. That's fantastic, you know, when the when the things on the wall, but you know, right here it's like what the f- I can't read this. <laughs> I am always finding my I take my glasses off to read stuff. I'm like, then what the hell am I wearing them for in the first place? Well, it's just like I, I <laughs> try, try soldering something, let me tell you. I'm like, "Whoa. Mm-hmm. I can't see what's in front of me right now." Oh, God. but um yeah, so thank you to anyone who I forgot. I know George Metropolis was watching for a minute. Thank him. Um, oh, I don't know who else is here. <laughs> Thanks, everyone, basically. There you go. Perfect. Well, we'll be back. we will be back. Uh, follow us on our page, uh, ToneTalk.com. It's Tone-Talk.com, I should say. We're on Twitter, which is at ToneTalk on yt okay at tone talk on yt on twitter um subscribe to the channel we will be back we'll make more announcements of our next guests and uh looking forward to it guys yeah, I, think, I think we're gonna do it bi-weekly i think is what the the initial plan is for this so so Perfect. keep an eye out in a couple weeks for another show yep we will be back it was a fantastic first show Grover, thank you yeah thank you thank you so much you to everybody know. Thanks for uh, thanks for sharing the stories. It's always fun and being quite frank, which I knew you would. Yeah, <laughs> I can do. So I right, thank you guys. I really appreciated the, the yeah. opportunity to rattle a little bit. Yeah, no, it's great. It's great. Everybody loved it. So yeah. thank you. You guys, hang on. Uh, we've got our pizza party. I shouldn't say pizza party. We're gonna have our beer and uh, whiskey party, right? Or scotch party. I'm drinking scotch right now, so there you go. All right, that's what we're doing. <laughs> All right, you guys hang on. Uh, everybody who uh, participated, and oh, and you're holding a vintage T guitar in your hand, right, by the way. We got, we got guitars behind me, too. Yep. On the wall. That's right. Callies and vintage T's and... Les Paul? Uh, yeah, Bernie Les Paul. Ah, very uh, which nice. Is, which is a very underrated... Uh, uh, well, I don't want to say that because I can't get them for cheap anymore. Yeah, they're going for they're going for money now. They're going for more money than they used to, but uh, uh, the old uh, you know '80s Bernie Les Paul uh, uh, lawsuit guitar, shall we say, mm. was a great guitar, especially from that era. The that era, and that that is one from that era. I also have a Kramer Pacer back there. I don't know if anyone can see it in the back, which was on my wall when I've done some other shows. Yeah, uh, we, so we talked about that, right? Yeah. It's for sale. Oh, it is. <laughs> I think I know someone who wants to buy that. That's for sale. So is that other flat black one guitar. Uh, I'm just going to throw it out there. Everything's for sale if you want to offer something. Except for the Freedmans. Those are prototypes. And those we keep those. <laughs> <laughs> All right, cool. Contact Dave if anybody uh, is interested, especially that acoustic that's hanging over the door there. Oh, you don't want that one. <laughs> You know that has a very special tremolo on it. It uh, you know it's a twelve string acoustic, but the tremolo only tremolos six of the twelve strings. That's very special. Wow, I wonder how that sounds. <laughs> I don't think it sounds anymore. <laughs> awesome. Well, guys, thank you. Hang on, I'm gonna I'm gonna end the broadcast. Everybody who watched, thank you, Grover. You rock, Dave. Thank you, and uh, everybody have a great weekend. Take care, guys. And I just heard the pacer. Dave Nesdal wants it. All right. (laughs) All right, guys. Have a great night.